Hey everybody, welcome back to the Pop Anime Comics Lounge where I have with me Robert McCollum, who is a TV host, producer, and what most people know you for is as a voice actor who has voiced Goten from Dragon Ball Z, Sensei from Yu Yu Hakusho, Jal from Fairy Tale, Julius Nova Chrono, the Wizard King, well congratulations on all your experience with that, from Black Clover, Thank you. Fumito Nanahara from Blood Sea, that is a kid show. By definition, <laughs> Stain from My Hero Academia, Rainer from Attack on Titan, and one of my favorite characters from One Piece, Do Flamingo. To name a few, so thank you for being on the podcast. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. And you did great with the names. Full disclosure to those of you listening, when we talked before we started the interview, he was very worried about all the names. You crushed it. You did great. I am so bad at names, everybody. But having said that, you have been voice acting now since the early 2000s. Actually, even earlier than that, late 90s, it was gone that far and also one other thing i want to say just because somebody's losing their mind right now i was goten from dragon ball gt which is dorky teenage goten not little kid goten that's my friend kara and i can't take credit for her work in dragon ball z so i often said it would be funny if i ever like asked kara out because then i would be dating my younger self but luckily it never happened it wasn't an issue and now we're going to talk about goten but before we (laughs) get into goten i am very curious as how you first got into voice acting because you started in the late 1990s. I know Desert Punk was one of the early shows and there was some early case closed stuff. But in terms of what the actual first date was, I have no idea because we didn't know it was monumental back then. It was just a gig. But I was acting in Dallas and doing commercial work and also improv comedy in Dallas. I had a real job as a marketing and sales guy and it started getting into acting and improv because that seemed way more fun than having a real job. And through doing improv, had met a guy named Mike McFarlane and he was in another another improv troupe in Dallas. He was in a historic troupe that played years and years and years in Dallas called Section 8. And Chris Rager was in that. And a lot of guys that have done a lot of anime voicing have came out of Section 8. But Mike was one of the early guys up at Funimation, which was this new company no one had ever heard of, doing this new thing that no one had ever heard of. They were dubbing anime into English. And they had a tiny studio over a bank outside of Dallas and Fort Worth, just kind of in the middle hinterlands, and said, hey, we need voice people. You do voiceover stuff. You do commercial. Come audition. And it wasn't really even an audition. It was kind of the thing like you showed up and got a job. Like you got handed a role. It just might not be a very good role. But if you were willing to drive all the way out there, they would just give you parts. Be like, okay, you're man number four on this and you're person on the train B on this and threw everybody into the booth and nobody knew it was going to go anywhere. And the only thing they had was Dragon Ball Z, which was a big deal, but nobody knew that it was the start of an industry, really. Like this was going to become a huge thing and being able to distribute them in the US was going to become a huge thing. We knew it was happening in Japan, but nobody thought the odds of crossover were very high. So there was no competition for this kind of work. Didn't pay any money. It was just, is anybody willing to go do it? And so you'd go out there and then over time started getting bigger and more roles. Got to be Baki in Baki the Grappler, which was my first title role, which is a bizarre series of wrestling to be the best and eating your way to being the best wrestler that you can possibly be. But yeah, that's how it all started. Basically, I can say it's just because I knew Mike McFarland that I started doing anime. And now I want to back up a little bit and talk about the early days, because when you came into Funimation, when they were first starting, they were really not known. Everything was becoming Americanized. This was at the peak of anime. What was that scene like coming into that and really not knowing where everything was going? Because it's sort of the Wild West, for lack of a better word. Yeah, it was totally the Wild West. And it was also kind of crazy because they didn't know what they had tapped into. And so they were kind of taking content down a fire hose. It was coming out of 
from Fast and Furious because they knew they had a success with Dragon Ball and they didn't know what else was going to hit. So then it was the game and all of the dub houses were in the same game at that time. Get the rights to anything you can and throw it out and see if any of them stick. Like there was almost no taste making. Can we get the rights to it? Get it. Great. We'll dub it. We'll do it. And throw it out there and see if it turned into a thing. Case Closed was a huge project that ran on for years and years and they got some of the other big titles but no one in North Texas even really knew what a big title was. The sources in Japan were feeding things back this way but there wasn't a lot of communication back then. It was basically whatever Funimation could get a hold of, they got a hold of. And so writers were having to go from direct translations not knowing anything about the genre and they were hiring writers and only a few people figured out how to do it so I think those people are all insane now because they were writing so many scripts a week for just no pay at all because this is before there were any kind of contracts and real decisions and nobody knew if there was any money in this and so nobody was watching very closely it was all just like okay sure whatever yeah it's a side gig it kind of was the out of work actors relief fund it's like a public works project for Dallas actors oh I can't get any gigs there's no theater going on right now but there's always work at Funimation so I'll go out there and to do the voices and of course now it's so different such a sophisticated marketing machine and a huge corporate entity with sales projections and auditions and 300 people showing up for every role it's a totally different world and now we mentioned GT and we got to talk about it because that show is either you love it you hate it or it makes you hate Dragon Ball Z so what was that like being Goten on that show and being adult Goten and dealing with that we all knew that Dragon Ball was the big dog and so after things got established we wanted to do that most parts were already cast we were always hoping like is there going to be a new character is it going to be a new character and then they're like hey we got a whole bunch of new characters there's a shot and so I went out great I would love to be in the Dragon Ball thing I'd gotten to do some things in several of the movies I'd gotten to do a hilarious character called Meloja who is a priest in a couple of the Dragon Ball Z movies who is very loud and obnoxious and funny and then they were like hey we want you to come in and do this and this is the grown up version of these characters and so I'm thinking great I'm gonna be like really cool and really tough and they're like no not the adult version we want you to be the teenage dorky version <laughs> like oh okay because when I started, I was thought of as the young, earnest 16-year-old or 18-year-old, even though I was much older than that at the time. That was kind of what I had slotted into, and it took a while for me to try to get into some of the manlier, gruffer, deeper voices that I wanted to be doing and that also were closer to how I actually talked. But yeah, it was fun to do, and also Goten is the one that inadvertently sits on the button and launches the ship and kind of screws everything up, and they spend the rest of the series sorting out his mistakes. So he's not in it a lot. He's not a very prolific character in that series, but he has a big impact. It's always nice to be able to claim a part in that history. And now there's other Dragon Ball Z things that you have done, but I kind of want to jump into another show that's similar to Dragon Ball Z, and that's Yu Yu Hakusho, where you were the villain, and you were a very methodical villain in Sensei. And that was a great role, and one that I actually really lobbied for. I've said this at some cons before. I was kind of stuck in the young hero world, and really wanted to do a bad guy. I got to do one character called Striker that was a good, kind of low, gravelly guy, but I'm like, I really want to do more in that world. And the directors often just cast you as what they think of you as, so what you've done for them before. They're like, oh, this role is like this. Oh, we'll call Rob. And in those days, a lot of times there wasn't even a lot of auditioning. It was like, hey, we thought of you. Put yourself on tape. We'll send it to Japan. If it gets approved, you're the guy. So Justin Cook, who is now a very powerful and important figure in Funimation, back in those days, he was a lowly director playing his tribe and also a voice actor who's voice acted a ton. But he said, hey, I want you to read for this bad guy. He's the season three bad guy and he's super dark and there's a lot of layers and he's actually a character with some 
depth, and I really want someone who's an actor who can really do that. And I don't mean that with disrespect to anybody else, but there are some people that are amazing at doing voices, and some people that are actors who do stage and film and other things, and different roles require different skill sets. And that was kind of a deep and dark and layered character. And it was also kind of eye-opening for me because that was the most layered character that I had come across in anime at that time. And it was eye-opener to me, like, oh, there's a whole lot of really good storytelling going on. It's not all one type thing, and it's not all just good guys and bad guys. The writers that are writing the anime in Japan are really diving into some of the interesting questions about good and bad. And so getting to do my first bad guy and for him to be so cool and so powerful. Yeah, powerful people work a lot less, so it's a lot easier to be a powerful person. And now Yu Yu Hakusho is a fighting anime, and there's been plenty of fight scenes. I mean, you push Yusuke Yurameshi as a character heavily with Sensei. So what is that like voicing a fight scene? Because you've done video game work. How is that similar with a fight scene in anime versus a fight scene in video game work? In the anime world, we're very much tied to the scene. Oftentimes in video games, you are making the movements in isolation. So it is a punch separate from anything. You don't know what it's going to look like, and they will animate that punch later after you've made the sound. So you'll do 20 punch sounds. But with anime, you're in the actual fight, and you're making sounds specific to that motion and watching it through. And while those are not difficult from a character standpoint necessarily, like you don't have to go research what your backstory is or your emotional motivation there, you're just punching. It's just fun because it's fast. You're going through, you're watching the scenes, and you kind of try to get as many as you can in a row. Like, let's get the next five reactions together so they can build. And some directors really like to go in and do one sound at a time. Other directors will let you get really ambitious and like, let's do the whole fight all the way through. And so that one sound and reaction builds off of another. And that's the way I prefer to do it. And that's the way we did a lot of the Yu Yu Hakusho fights. So like just watching the whole thing and reacting, we'd watch it all the way through a few times in the Japanese and then just chase it in the English and try to follow on what's happening. And they were really intense, but also just fun. Because there are moments when you're in the booth and you're like, I'm getting paid to do this. This is not a job. This is just playing and making fight sounds like we did when we were seven years old in the front yard. It's kind of great. And what is it like for you to be in a show like Yu Hakusho and a show like Dragon Ball Z that has still remained relevant? And you've done plenty of others that we're going to get to in a few minutes, but what is that like for you to be in shows so early on in your career that still impact multi-generations now of anime fans? Well, it's super cool, and it's also a thing that I wasn't really keyed in on because with my schedule and work stuff, and I've got kids that are now teenagers, but when they were young, I didn't do conventions very much. So I was kind of isolated from the fandom for a long time and did not realize how important these shows were to people. Like, I would get mail and get stuff. Can you sign an autograph for this? And that sort of thing. But it was only when I started going to conventions because my schedule freed up and I was able to that I really started realizing, like, oh, yeah. Yu Yu is a huge deal. This was a big show for people. And same way with Dragon Ball GT and same way with some of those early shows that you realize, oh, they have a huge fandom and it's still really passionate today. It's not just the show that we did last year, but the show we did 15 years ago that also really matters to people. So it's cool. And that's what's so great about going to the conventions is that you can meet people face to face and kind of remind yourself there are people on the receiving end of this. It's not like a podcast that everybody jumps on the comments and tells you what you did was great 
did or what you did was terrible or explain why you're an idiot in incredible detail. <laughs> Back then, these were going to DVDs that were sold in Best Buys across the country, and there wasn't really any kind of a feedback loop. For a long time, there wasn't one. It was only when, when the rise of the anime con really made that connection solid that we realized how important these shows were to the fans and how committed to them the fans were. And now to talk about another show that might be important to fans, both in America and Japan, and that is Baki. And Baki is a complicated character and everything that he does and everything that he wants to do and all the fighting that happens. I love that you're asking about it because nobody ever asks about Baki the Grappler. Baki was one of my first ones. I go to conventions and sometimes someone will bring up a box set to get signed or something, but nobody ever talks about Baki. So you're making me very happy right now, Andrew. So let's talk about it because it's obviously martial arts. It's both physical. It's mental. He's got somewhat of a daddy issue to some degree. Somewhat of a daddy issue? It is all about daddy issues. Maybe the truth of MMA in general. I know you're a wrestling fan and an MMA fan, but there's got to be some daddy issues rife in that environment. Let's be honest. So what is that like for you coming into this character and everything he's dealing with? It was kind of great. Like I said, that was the first, I think, title character that I ever played. And the director was like, don't read it. Don't look it up. And that was before online was even a big thing. But Zach Bolton directed it and said, I'm going to let all these surprises come to you in the booth. Don't look into it ahead of time. Don't go buy the manga. Just be surprised. And there are crazy things about his personal life, his relationship with his mother. And I would be watching them for the first time. And the way it normally works in recording is that we'll watch the Japanese in little clips, like one sentence at a time, and then go again right away in English and try to match that. And you've got a script on one page and a playback screen on the other. And he'd go, and go. So like, mom comes in and gives you a full mouth kiss with tongue. And go. And so as confused as young teenage Baki was in navigating all of that. Voiceover actor Rob was also equally confused about what the hell was going on. So it was great because it was very easy to connect to his sense of disconnection. And I can't figure anything else. I don't know who's my good guys, who my bad guys are. I'm just gonna train and fight people that were willing to fight me because that's the one thing that he could grasp on. Everything else is too complicated, but I know if I practice really hard and then punch people really hard, I will gain their respect. And so that's what Baki was all about. Everyone he fought was like the big enemy, and then they would fight, and then they would gain each other's respect, and now we're friends. Because, hey, friendship is magic, people. And now, to steal my little pony here, because that's what we just stole from, because that's what we do on this podcast. Stealing is fundamental, everybody. That's the nature of podcasting. And I know, I produce too, so I'm with you. Podcasting is all about stealing from good people. That's the message of the day, everybody, right there. And now, Baki is very popular. You had two seasons with it. It's on 134-plus volumes at this point. It's still going on in Japan. It's really never-ending. It's been going on for, like, the last two decades. I keep hoping there going to do more over here or that Funimation will get the rights to do some more. I know some other companies I think have done some U.S. stuff, but I keep hoping that it'll come back around to Funnyland because I would love to revisit this character. I'd love to be like 70-year-old Baki. He's maybe addicted to nicotine. He's a chronic smoker, eats a lot of noodles and trains kids, but he's super crusty and crotchety. That would be so great. And so now that we know what your dream is in life, how do you feel that it is still relevant, though, to some degree that it's still going on in Japan and it's still popular as far as a mod? 
manga and that it's still selling well and that there is a fan base out there for it whether they bring a box set to you at a convention or not which if you have one please bring a box set to rob please do but how does that make you feel that it's still relevant there's a certain simplicity to it and that's weird to say when i just talked about how complex it was in terms of the character and backstory but there is something about a guy who is really pure in his dedication to be the best at something and that is now echoed across all kinds of genre when you look at free eternal summer and so many different sports genres that are kind of that same idea of like i just want to be the best at this i just want to be the best at this one thing and there's all this kind of stuff getting in my way and trying to slow me down and interesting characters but baki at his core was like i just want to be the best at this now when he came back later after he had had a harder life he was a little bit more jaded but still there was kind of this simplicity and this purity to it i think that's probably why it's still there i think american storytellers get really complicated sometimes trying to reinvent it and change it and make it different from season to season and sometimes if it works you can just keep doing it and so i think that's part of the reason that baki has persisted i'd totally be up for it and right after we ask this question they're going to stop listening because this is the dark portion of the podcast because we're going to start talking about Witchblade. I do love Witchblade. So clearly this was darker. This was a change in that kid, innocent, dorky Goten. It redeems that component. So what was it like to be on Witchblade? Well, this was much closer to me. Like, oh, well, we want you to be a smartass, drunk most of the time, totally jaded, questioning of authority, slightly sexist. And that's where I was in my 20s at that point in time. So I'm like, great, love this guy. And that was a lot of fun because we just got to figure out different ways for him to say insulting things. He's a terrible person, but it's a great role and a fun show. There's so much sexual symbolism in that show that it's not even subtle, but it is still a really interesting show. I like powerful female characters. I'm sorry that they all have to be genetically enhanced in that way to exist in the anime world, or at least they did back at that time. But I like that show because it almost seemed aware somehow of its sexist nature and embraced it and played off of it as opposed to normalized it. Maybe that is still normalizing, but I have a soft spot in my heart for that show and that character. And that's another one that I'm surprised that didn't have longer legs and more impact. And speaking about dark shows, Blood Sea, which is part of the Blood Plus trilogy. So dark. Ben Diskin was on Blood Plus and he spoke about how that's a kid show. We're kidding in case you don't get the sarcasm. But what was that like? Because that show doesn't pull any punches. And another great example of Rob, don't read ahead. They said specifically, you are the nice, sweet neighbor that lives next door to this girl and you are going to help her out and that's all you need to know and don't look at anything and don't read ahead i'm like okay and then when we started revealing who this character was i'm like oh my god this is dark super dark i mean i love playing in that world i'm hoping that it exercises people's demons to watch that instead of inspiring them but it is great as an actor to get to play in that super dark area and that was just a super well constructed character arc and the way that that all was revealed i thought was really great and there's one more i want to talk about and i'm probably going to mess up the name but Rin Daughters of Minosuke as Kiyoki Mano or Mano I don't even know because we never said his last name it was just Kiyoki and this show is just a wild show from the way it's done because it's six episodes I believe every episode is about an hour it's dark it has a weird timeline where it starts in like 1990 goes to 1991 and then it ends up in 2035 and it's just weird and it is arguably close enough to a soft core porn yeah it really is that was the first one 
that I remember doing where they were like really explicit from the beginning, like this is adult content. Do not audition for this if you have problems with doing items of a sexual nature. And they would put signs up on the door, like do not come in, no tours, because there are tours going around Funimation, sometimes corporate tours, sometimes school tours. And so they had to put up big signs on the door, like no tours. <laughs> they didn't want to inadvertently open the door on that show. That's probably the raciest one. And I didn't worry that much about doing racy content content and then I got super worried later like oh is this a bad thing and I've got two daughters and are they going to find this online and think bad things and now my daughters are both teenagers and they're like who cares you did voices you paid for groceries with that what do we care but for a while there I was worried and then I also did some things under a pseudonym and then the internet eventually said Robert McCollum as blank so I was like okay there's no point in trying to hide my voice people know now but that was also fun just because I believe J. Michael Tatum was the director on that show who was perfect in dealing with the very, very raunchy content and making sure that everybody was professional. And it was a little awkward to go in and voice a scene and then see the person out in the hallway that you just heard moaning from the previous scene you recorded. But everyone kind of pretended like it hadn't happened. They were like, oh, hey, hi, how are you? Good, good, good work. Okay, cool. I'll talk to you later. Eyebrows really high on the forehead for no reason during that time period. And so I want to talk about that for a second because clearly this was one of the first times you were worried about a role. So what was that? like for you and what were you so concerned about going into it especially considering that i don't remember the exact time but this was maybe 10 years ago I'm thinking this might have been 2004 that we were recording that, but I'm not sure because of when it came out. That was also back when things recorded and then were released way later as opposed to all of it coming out the same week that you've dubbed it. It's a totally different world we're living in now. It was interesting because you were voicing these very intimate scenes with actresses that you had known for a long time and respected. And it was like, oh, okay, this is it. And then also just the overall idea of violence and nothing was consensual. That's what I'm saying here, Andrew. Nothing was consensual in that show. Nobody was happy about what was happening. Most of the time with rare exceptions so it was a little gross but we talked through it and it started conversations and that's kind of what it was about like it wasn't shying away from that and it also wasn't saying hey this is okay it was kind of raising the question of is this okay and isn't this a problem so it was a different time i don't know that that show gets made today and i don't know if that's good or bad just so everybody's aware that show is actually banned it's one of the 38 shows that's banned in china in the anime world i didn't know that not that they would ever watch the english dub in china anyway but even to have a small part in a banned show is exciting. I believe the Japanese version is banned as well as Code Geass is banned in China. So that should give you some context. Not gonna lie, pre-rush show. And now I want to jump into some of your bigger roles and we're going to skip over a bunch of stuff that is fun to talk about, but we're pressed for time. And I think the first show that everybody wants to know about is Fairy Tale as Jahal and Mistogan. Yes, Jalal, Mistogan, and also Seagrain in season one, which you think is a separate character and is if you haven't watched season one yet no spoilers <laughs> we just ruined it they're all the same they're all one guy i believe that was chris Batman's directing those early season of that if that's wrong then someone will email me and say something nasty but he said these are two separate guys they are related to each other but i want you to do two totally different characters totally different vocalizations for them and i'm like cool okay acting challenge great and didn't know that they were going to be all the same guy until the reveal, which is many, many episodes deep in season one. There's revealed to be the same person and one is a projection of the other. And then I went back and listened to it and I'm like, oh, those don't sound that different at all. Here, I thought I was doing this masterful delineation between the two characters. And I'm like, both kind of sound the same. <laughs> 
Maybe I'm not the master thespian that I thought I was and able to divide those streams. Mystigan is a very different voice and a very different character. Fairy Tale is a show that just had a huge impact on people and people love it and line up for hours to come get an autograph just because they love that show so much. I really love Jalal in the first season. He kind of turns into a wuss after that. I really like bad guy Jalal. I don't know that I like good guy Jalal very much. He's just really an annoying kind of wuss that won't ask Urza out, and it just annoys me. I'm like, oh, I liked you so much better when you were evil. And I know he's had a bad time, and yes, there's still a chance that Jalal's going to come back. You never know what may happen. He's still out there, but I have to admit, it was way more fun to play when he was a bad guy than he was a good guy. And now I want to talk about Fairy Tale, because Fairy Tale is obviously on its last season, and it's really impacted people over the last decade. And so what does that mean for you to be part of a show that has such an impact and really the first season in particular and even the second season that kicked off this massive drive after Ravemaster had a fantastic run? It's just amazing because we still don't know. Some of the times with like Attack on Titan that I know we're going to talk about in a minute, it's already a huge phenomenon before we get involved. But with some of these like fairy tale, you're like, okay, I know this is massive in Japan, but it may not take off over here. It may not be as big a deal. You never know what is going to find legs in the U.S audience and some people just don't care about dubs at all so they never hear us which is fine i'm not mad at those people i get it if you want to listen in the original i understand that instinct but sometimes the dubs really matter and in this one especially fairy tale that people really connected to the casting of the dub characters and the english voice actors that were brought in to play it and there was a lot of care and thought brought to casting them and assembling that team and it's kind of like one piece in that it's like okay this is just a really good group of characters that have been assembled and they've found a good way to move between the different storylines and keep it interesting and fresh so yeah i just felt lucky to get to be involved in that if you haven't watched attack on titan season one please fast forward five minutes into the podcast and now we're going to talk about Attack on Titan, because why wouldn't we? Because you are Rainer Braun, who is extremely yes. complex. He's the armored titan. I don't think we're ruining anything for anybody. Spoilers! And Rainer has just actually been elevated to a protagonist level, according to Wikipedia. So how did you get the opportunity to come across the voice in? Well, again, it goes back to where it all started for me, Mike McFarlane, who is the voice of Master Yoshi in Dragon Ball Z. Mike McFarlane was the director of Attack on Titan. He is one of the top names at Funimation. He is who they trust with their precious, precious commodities. He directed the American dub of Summer Wars, which was nominated for Academy Award, and he was involved in Attack on Titan from the very beginning and assembled all of those players and graciously invited me to come in and read and I read for a few characters but he was interested in Reiner from the very beginning. And again, they were like, don't read. Just let it wash over me. So I did not know when I started recording. And then so many people were like, oh my God, I can't believe you're Reiner. That's so great. That's so huge. Such a big deal. Twitter and Facebook and my Robert McCollum voice actor fan page on Facebook. Sign up now. Started going crazy about it. That was a pretty subtle plug, wasn't it? And so I'm like, okay, why does everybody care? Because Reiner's only in a few episodes in season one and hardly says anything. He's just kind of this tall, vaguely German guy that doesn't speak a lot and grunts. And so I had to look it up and I'm like, Oh, oh, that's why it's a big deal. And I didn't know David Matranga at that point. David Matranga is a great voice actor who came out of Houston, now splits his time between Dallas and Houston. But when he was voicing that, we had not met yet and got to know each other later. And both of us were kind of having that same thing of like, why is everybody making such a big deal about the, oh, 
It was great for me to kind of be on that journey and not know from the beginning and then get to realize it. And then for a while, knowing and knowing it was coming, but not knowing when in the series it was going to come. We knew when it happened in the manga, but we didn't know when it was going to happen in the series and when is the reveal going to come. And then it's such a weird reveal. The episode where it all is revealed is so strange and kind of low key, like just casually confessing it on the top of a wall. And then, all right, come on, let's go. Like, it's not going to be a big thing, but that's when Reiner's losing it. Getting to do characters that are crazy are great. I love doing characters that are slowly losing their mind. It's kind of my favorite thing. Going all the way back to Yu Yu Hakusho, when Senswe heard 35 versions of himself in his own head arguing with him. Like, I love characters that are a little bit losing it. So getting to play Reiner in that arc was really great. And now, obviously, Reiner has a lot of secrets, a lot of things that are interesting. Reiner is a very decent traveler. Again, we're speaking codes here, everybody. He also likes to go to Super city sometimes he's a man of varied interests i was a little upset on how little we saw of him but there's still things to be learned that's the nice thing that's all i'll say there's still things to be learned and so how do you feel about going forward about your partners in attack on titan and how are you close with them trina nishimura plays mikasa and she is one of the greatest human beings on the face of the planet she tricked me last year into a weight loss challenge with a bunch of bartender friends of hers and got us all going to the gym to like compete for money and I think probably saved all of our lives because we are all fat and disgusting and now we are all slightly less fat and disgusting because Trina was like hey guys if there was money on the line you might actually go to the gym and work out and yeah the physique of an anime voice actor is pretty much exactly what you would imagine and very akin to most of the titans you see wandering naked across the landscape that's what we all look like so anything to help get us into the gym is much appreciated and that is something that Trina did for me. So I've added at least three years to my life thanks to her. And one of your partners is David Matranga in Attack on Titan. And we can't really talk about anything just yet about that. But you were partners with him. He's Burden Holt, in case anybody didn't yes. know. Just to fill everybody in here. And you got to kind of square against his character in My Hero Academia, where you were Stain and he was Totodokuri. Yes, that was again right before we met. And now I consider him a really good friend. First of all, Yale School of Drama, David Matranga. Lest anyone is thinking that he is just chintzing on the acting training. I made some funny anime and made some voiceovers for some commercials, but David went to Yale School of Drama and has done some amazing theater work, and I met him when he was doing a show at the Dallas Theater Center. He came from Houston to Dallas to do a show called The Great Society about LBJ, and so we met when he was in town doing that, and he is a fabulous human being, but it was great to realize, you're Todoroki, oh my god, yeah, and I knew he was Bernholt, and we had kind of messaged each other and stuff, but then realizing like, oh wait, that's you. Dane was another great character that came out of nowhere and disappeared really fast, but had a huge fan impact. So what is that like for you? Because you could make the argument about Stain that he really allowed My Hero Academia to grow with its audience base. Very much like a Ruby, very much like a Yu Hakusho towards the end a little bit where Stain ushers in that okay, we have a bunch of maybe 12-year-olds who are going on to 14. Stain kind of ushered that error in because My Hero is going to be around forever. Yeah, there was a lot of similarities between Stain and Yu Yu Hakusho, which I picked up on right away between Sen 
Kang's way. The noble bad guy, and it's not that he's noble. He's killing people. He's a bad person. Don't kill people even if you have a righteous cause. That's lesson number two. Steal on podcasts. That's lesson number one. Lesson number two, don't murder people no matter how righteous your cause is. However, I do think it's really interesting when there are characters that are doing the wrong thing but for the right reason or for at least what they are really committed to as the right reason. I think that is interesting, and I was fascinated by Stain and really got into this character. I mean, I knew the show was really popular. Colleen Klinkenbeard asked me to come in and read for this character. I was excited and got four episodes in and then was like, yes, this is awesome. Big fight scene. Cool. And wait, what? He's done? He just stopped talking mid-sentence and locked up? That's it? So I still am hoping that Stain will come back, but it was pretty great. And I think you're very right to say that that was an evolution point in the show. There's my hero pre-Stain and my hero post-Stain, and it is a very different narrative landscape. So while he is a small character in terms of line count and the number of episodes he's in, his shadow looms large over the show. And it's been fun to get to do and also to see how excited, again, at the cons, people coming out and seeing people cosplay as Stain and seeing people really get excited about getting pictures and autographs. It's cool. And now I briefly <laughs> want to touch upon Julius Nova Prono, the Wizard King, who is one of my favorite characters in anime for everything of all of his comedy moments, as well as the fact that he is a genuine dangerous person. So. So, yes, the Wizard King, Black Clover. I love this character so much because I've gotten to play two different types of characters because of the way my voice trends and also just my personality. I play super dorks and then low gravelly dangerous bad guys. That's kind of the two categories, and there's very few in between. It's either down here guys that are up to no good, or they're up here guys. And I love Julian because he is both. For the first time, I get to play both. And in the beginning, he's all dork, except when he's trying to pretend he's an old lady. But he's super dorky and just a magic nerd. But all the time, I'm like, I know. There's a reason this guy's the Wizard King. There's a reason. When are we going to get to see it? And we have gotten to see snippets of it so far. But I still feel like there's going to be an unleashing at some point in time where he goes full Julian and we get to really see what he's capable of. And I can't wait for that. So far, he's just the nice guy that wants to see everybody do well, interested in different new magic spells, trying to protect the kingdom, trying to placate the actual king who's threatened by him. Eventually, there's going to come a moment where the wizard king has to go full wizard king and we're going to see exactly why he is at the top of this pyramid. And I can't wait and now we're done talking about good kings because the wizard king is good throughout all of black clover it's not a spoiler it's just a fact but there's a little bit of a crazier king that you have laid and he's got a few screw looses and he is my favorite sob and that is doflamingo i figured you were gonna say doflamingo i also like odo nobunaga who has screws loose and <laughs> is a king in his own right so yes, Doflamingo is just the gift that keeps on giving. I think he's done. I think he's dead. I think it's over. Hey, I get to voice some more. Hey, I get to voice some more. There's a whole new arc coming. We're on episode 7,400 at this point. This show never stops, and it's great. It's like Greek mythology. There's just thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of this. There's just no end to the number of stories that can be told in the One Piece universe, and I love Doflamingo. It's also, I will confess, the first action figure of a character of mine that I ever actually bought was because that feather coat was so cool that I had to have it and I bought a Doflamingo. I have since bought a tight pop, but those are the only two because I think that's kind of weirdly gross to have 
action figures of yourself. I don't know why. It feels conflicting to me, but those are the two that I broke down and went ahead and did. Again, you have no idea when you're going and voice these things. Like, oh, he's just one of the many captains at this big table of a meeting, and who knows where this is going to go, and then it goes on forever. And Doflamingo has a very unique history, and I want to touch upon it briefly, as he has history with his pirate family, Vertigo, with the Marines, Law, you know, he fights Luffy, he does everything else with Rebecca, and Toy Soldier, and he likes toys, and he's selling weapons, and he does it all. So what is it like to be able to legitly have every single character you could possibly do an anime wrapped into one who wears a pink feather coat? Well, the real challenge is connecting those and trying to make them the same person, at least in some ways. So many of the different chapters you could enter into as though that was a whole new character. You could make a a new complete assessment of that and just be like, okay, this is what this guy's all about right now. And so keeping the through line, I think, is the hard point. And also because we record them sometimes years apart as we do different sections, because the story is so huge and varied that we go seven months without seeing Doflamingo. Sometimes we've gone two years without seeing Doflamingo. So like the challenge as an actor is to reorient and be like, okay, go back, find this guy, and then figure out where he is in his life at this point in the story. Is this before that? Is this after that? It's a challenge, and that's also where you lean on your director a lot, because your director has been with the story every episode, so they can bring you up to speed and let you know what's happening now and connect the dots a little bit. Sometimes dots going backwards, sometimes dots going forward, just to let you know kind of where you are and how to bring this character around. It's always exciting. I can't wait for the next big Doflamingo arc. And now, I don't want to ruin anything about Doflamingo and the Dressrosa arc and everything that happens elsewhere in One Piece, possibly with Kaido, just to give a hint here or there. And so that's a perfect place where we're going to stop, but I do want to pick your brain, and my listeners want to know what advice you have for people who want to pursue voice acting, even though we didn't get to nearly half of your roles, and you've been doing this for a while now. Well, I was very lucky to live in North Texas, and I will tell you that living in the Dallas area is a big help, because still a majority of the dub work happens here. And while they will fly people in from New York, you know, if you're Travis Willingham, you can get flown in from L.A. or they will do a voice patch to L.A. But they're not going to do that for new folks. The advice is that you got to be close to here to do it and also realize that that is a labor of love and not a career. You cannot survive on doing anime as an actor. Now, you can survive as an actor. You can do commercials. You can do television. You can do corporate training videos, which there's a lot of around Texas. Commercial voiceover, radio commercials, TV. TV commercials, stage, all of those things. But everyone who makes their living in some way doing anime is a slash, meaning they are anime voiceover slash director slash writer slash babysitter slash waiter slash whatever. It is a cobbled together life. We're doing a second adaptation dub of an original performance already done, and the original performer didn't make a ton of money doing it. There's not a lot of money left in the can. (laughs) There are some people that are able to make their living just doing doing dub voice work and conventions. And that's great that there are so many conventions now and that that is a possibility. And that's why I don't begrudge anybody that is selling their stuff at a convention because I know how little they got paid to voice that thing. And if they're going to make their living just doing this and being available to the fans, then that's what it takes. So good on them. It is a small sliver of a bigger picture. So I would say always figure out your bigger picture. If you want to be an actor, if you want to be a person that makes their living telling stories, take acting classes, take on-camera acting classes, take stage acting classes it all comes into play and then see if you can add anime into that repertoire but coming in to just do that is pretty rough and you know coming to north texas will help 
And now I would like to give you an opportunity to promote yourself. Do you have a Facebook, a Facebook fan page, Twitter, Instagram, website, anything else you want to promote? I am on Twitter. I believe it's VO Rob McCollum. I should know that. But look up Robert McCollum. Robert McCollum is the official name. The Facebook fan page is the best way to interact. And it is Robert McCollum voice actor fan page on Facebook. And I also am the executive producer on a new podcast called 1865. That's the other thing I'm going to promote, which is a podcast that right now is on Stitcher Premium only, but I think will soon be available to the general public. And it is a historical drama, all fully acted and realized and sound designed historical drama. It's got some great anime voices you will recognize, people on the series like J. Michael Tatum and Jeremy Schwartz and Brandon Potter and Bruce Elliott, who is amazing. So watch for 1865 and learn all about the aftermath of the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. I know it doesn't sound exciting, but God, it is. As always, thank you for listening to this week's episode of the podcast, and I can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitch Radio, and anywhere else where you listen to your podcasts. And while you wait for next week's episode, you can definitely check us out at popanimecomics.com for articles relating to anime, comics, and pop culture, as well as give us a follow on Twitter at popanimecomics. Check out our Instagram, popanimecomics, like our Facebook page, popanimecomics. If you want to support this podcast, I have a pro wrestling t-shirt. That's popanimecomics on prowrestlingtees.com, so please go buy it. I really do need the support. And until next week, everybody, have a wonderful week. Bye!